you guys probably know there is a difference between showing up and being fully engaged. Maybe you've been on a, a work project with other people and some people show up, which is a good first step, but uh, that's not all there is to it. They just don't bring the energy or the commitment to the task that other people have, and it doesn't seem fair. Or some of you husbands have been sitting in the room fully physically present, and your wife comes in and the conversation begins, but you are not fully engaged, and hilarity ensues. So a woman several years ago in California, Kathleen Gomez Collier, found out the tragic results of, of not being fully engaged when you need to. She was having difficulty getting home late one Saturday evening, got lost, stopped at a resort to ask for directions, went into the building, got some directions, came back, got, got in her car, and drove off. Surveillance video shows her pausing for about 20 seconds with her blinker on at an intersection. She's talking on the cell phone. After 20 seconds, she begins to accelerate, takes a left, and drives straight down the boat ramp into the Sacramento River. Turns out later, investigators find that she is talking to her daughter on the phone, and she has the wherewithal to ask her adult daughter to call the insurance company because water's coming in the truck. And yet, Divers found her the next morning in her submerged truck 200 feet downstream. Now that, to me, boggles the mind. But I think the outcome of being not fully engaged sometime, the, the consequences are enormous. And that's true for individuals. It also can be true for organizations or for churches. So... Last week, Pastor Ed started a sermon series called Count Me In. We're going to wrap it up today, but we're coming back to that theme off and on during the summer because if we're going to be the kind of church that God wants us to be, if we're going to be the kind of Christ followers who are thriving and fully functioning and growing in our devotion to Christ, it requires us to say to our church family, you can count me in, our health as individuals and the health of our church and our impact for Christ all hinges on whether we are all in with the family of God. So this week, we're going to move that conversation forward a little bit and take a look at what it looks like when God's people are fully engaged and working together and serving His purposes. So the passage that we want to look at is out of Nehemiah 3. So Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. If you kind of open your Bible in the middle, Psalms, flip back a couple of chapters, Nehemiah is there. And you can follow along on the screen or you can follow along if you've got a Bible with you. This passage, as Ed said, we, we talked about, it was six years ago in the summer of 2011. But it's worth going back to because this passage is so rich and it's so relevant to what we're wrestling with as a church right now. So we've been praying for the last several decades, actually, almost 20 years, people at Gateway have been praying that we would have an impact in this community. Even when Gateway years ago was meeting in Herndon, people were praying about a piece of land located at 42350 Tall Cedars Parkway. There was no Tall Cedars Parkway back then. Gum Spring didn't go through the piece of property that Gateway had purchased. But we believed that God had called us to have an impact in this area. And, and we believed that every step along the way, God was opening up doors for us and showing favor for us. And so we look at this building that is opening up in like three or four months, and to us, that represents an enormous challenge. Okay, if we're not fully engaged, we run the risk of not handling that challenge well. Everything from mortgage payments 
to what if we're not organized enough and new people come in and, and we don't do a good job of connecting with them. But beyond that, I think what really terrifies Pastor Ed and the elders and the leaders of our church is what if we blow this amazing opportunity that God has put before us? God has given us probably one of the best opportunities as a church in this area. I mean, I know having pastored other churches when my friends who had been meeting in schools like I had, and, and this, uh, by the way, I haven't been a part of a church that owned a building since 1987. So this whole idea of, I mean, I'm really used to portable church, but there is portable church envy. So I can remember, you know, being a pastor of a church years ago and a friend, his church, they leased the building and moved in. It's like, ah, man, if we only had that. We have the kind of opportunity ahead of us that other churches dream of. And we've designed this building specifically to help us connect with the people around us, to serve and love the community and help them see the difference that Christ makes in our life. And if we choke on that opportunity, if we are not in gear, fully engaged, all in, that, I think, is going to make God very unhappy, and I suspect we will all regret it. So we want to look at this passage in Nehemiah, and I want to pull out several observations that I'm going to have an assignment for you. Let me give you just a little background on the passage. So the period of the great kings in Israel, about a thousand before Christ, King David, King Saul, King Solomon, that's like the high point in the life of Israel. But following that, there were hundreds of years of decline. The kingdom splits in two. There's a civil war, and first one kingdom collapses and then the other. In 586 B.C., the kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon. And the way the Babylonians took care of things is they would take the leaders, the smartest, wisest, most influential people, and they would take them out of the country they conquered, and they'd bring them to Babylon, and they would make them Babylonians at heart. And so a man named Nehemiah, a Jewish guy, grows up in exile in Babylon. He is, in fact, a high official in the Babylonian government. And by 540 B.C., some of these exiled Jews are allowed to return to their homeland. And they go back, and word gets back to Nehemiah working in the king's court, and he finds out that the cities are in ruin. There's little or no organization. The land that once had been so proud and so devoted to Yahweh was now in ruins. And there was little organization or scattered leadership so about 450 B.C., Nehemiah steps into view. He hears a report from someone who's been back to Jerusalem. He's seen the destruction, and what Nehemiah hears from this person just crushes him. And so he prays and he fasts, and God puts it on his heart to approach the king and ask if he can go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the city of Shalom, the city of peace, God's city. And he goes to the king, and God gives him favor with the king, and the king sends him, yes, go do what you need to do, Nehemiah, and, and you have my resources and my backing to do that. So he goes back and he tells the people in Jerusalem that God has called us to rebuild his special city, to restore his reputation and his fame among all the people. So now let's build it. And in chapter 3, the work begins. So you can follow along with me on the screen if you want. Let's stand. I'm going to read. You can follow along. All right. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work, and they rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated and set it doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and then as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. 
The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaniah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshizabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joeda, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Bezodeah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatia of Gibeon, and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harhea, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Okay, you can be seated. So we look at this passage, and at first it reminds me a lot of Numbers or some of the other passages in Scripture where you're, you know, if you're reading through your Bible and you're covering a certain territory each day and you read it and your eyes kind of glaze over and you go like, oh my gosh, I can't even say these names. And it's just like, this guy did this, and then this guy did that, and this guy did this. And it feels like there's not a whole lot that you're going to get out of this passage. But here's what's cool. This is, this is one reason why I love the Bible and I love studying it. There are a lot of times when a passage we look at feels like it's full of goofy, irrelevant details that have nothing to do with our lives today, completely devoid of anything useful other than curing insomnia, perhaps. But like so many places in God's Word, when we dig into it, when we start to unpack it, we find something that is surprisingly relevant for us today. Because in spite of the weird names and places, Nehemiah is basically describing the work of rebuilding. And if you were familiar with the city of Jerusalem, you'd realize that he's starting at the northernmost gate. And he's working his way counterclockwise around the city. And he's just talking about who did the work. And then you go next around the wall and you head towards the western side. And here are the people that work there. And then you get to the south and the east. And he just works his way around the city, meticulously describing the work that was done at various points. But this passage makes some great points about what it looks like when God's people are fully engaged in the task at hand. So I'm going to run through these uh, kind of quickly, but I think these are worth digging into and thinking about maybe later on when you have some more time. First of all, all kinds of people do all kinds of work. As you look at this passage, you find that there are an incredible variety of people involved in the work. 38 individuals are named and 42 groups of people, not specifically named, but you know the town where they're from or they're the brothers who are the sons of. Men and women, old and young, lots of different professions are mentioned from ministers and politicians to goldsmiths and apothecaries. No matter their economic class or ethnic background, all these different people are working together, tackling different tasks. Some work near where their businesses or their homes are located in Jerusalem, but there are also people who come from adjoining cities outside of Jerusalem, places like Jericho, Gibeon, Mizpah, Zanoa, Tekoa. They don't live in the city, but the rebuilding of God's city of peace means so much to them that they are willing to leave their homes and come and work on this project. Even Nehemiah himself worked. He's a high official in the king's government. He's the, the governor of this town. He is given the full authority of the king. 
He's supposed to be running the job, but he gets his hands dirty. And if you skip ahead to chapter 4, you find out some of the tasks that he undertook. Nehemiah knew that the task was too great for a smaller group of people to accomplish. It was going to take everybody working together if they were going to accomplish what God had put in front of them. So the work is broken into manageable chunks, and everybody does their part. I mean, there is tons of application for us from this one concept, whether we're talking about our family, a sports team, our work, but especially in church. Everybody has a job to do, a role to play. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 compares the church to a human body. And he says, you know, there are lots of different parts, and it doesn't work if the hand is going like, I really want to be a foot. I want to walk around. That's not what a hand is designed to do. Some parts, like the mouth, get a lot of attention. Or the eyes, people are drawn to that. But there are some parts that aren't seen, internal parts or parts that just don't see the light of day, and they're just as important. And it takes every part working together for a healthy person to do what they're supposed to do. Likewise, in the church, you may be great at cooking, or your strength could be making phone calls and and keeping up with people, or meeting new people who love to hear their story, making them feel welcome. You don't have to be a pastor or a small group leader. Because you are important to the work of God. And if Gateway is your church home, then you are important to what God has called us to do here. We can't do it without you. We need your point of view. We need your voice. We need, sometimes, your complaint, your constructive criticism, your talent, your ability, your availability. We've got to have every person at Gateway involved in some way or another if we're going to meet the challenge that God has put before us. Another observation is that the spiritual leaders set the pace. The spiritual leaders. So at the very beginning of the chapter, we read that Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests, they went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Now, if you're a priest in Israel, you are a big deal. You think Pastor Ed is a big deal around here? He's nothing compared to the priest. They had, like, really impressive roles They wore impressive robes. They had cool hats and everything. I've seen your hat. It's not that impressive. It looks like it's been in the back of somebody's truck for a couple of decades. And so they were really impressive, but even the high priest and his fellow ministers were physically involved rebuilding the sheep gate. And in the kingdom of God, servants of all, those are the ones that God promotes into leadership. He said, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, then get at the end of the line. Be the chief servant of all. So we need our experienced, seasoned people to step up, set the pace in volunteering, in the attitude they display, in flexibility, in vision casting. Leaders are always supposed to pray and plan and kind of think through the details ahead of time, but that's not where the job stops. The job of being a leader involves executing and being neck deep in the work at hand. And that's true whether you're a parent and you're trying to lead your family, or whether you're a supervisor at work, or whether you're a leader at church. The same verse we looked at just a minute ago about Eliashib, it goes on to tell us that when they begin the work, that they're the ones that begin the work. And it's kind of this sense of like a little bit ceremonially, like, all right, we're ready to begin, but you guys are starting the work because you're the pace setters. And that's the way it's supposed to be in every season of history when it comes to the work of God. Those in spiritual leadership are supposed to be setting the pace. They're supposed to be at the front of the line, rolling up their sleeves, doing whatever needs to be done. They're the ones that are supposed to show up first and leave last. They're the ones who get the job done and then they come back and say, what else do you need me to do? 
Spiritual leaders set the pace. If you're a mom or a dad, whatever spiritual values you want to see in your children, they're not going to get that from somebody else. You are the dominant spiritual influence in your children's lives. And unless they can look at you and see God at work in you, changing you from the inside out, they're never going to get it. It's never going to be real to them. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So we ought to be asking ourselves, any of us in any kind of leadership role around the church or our family, we ought to be saying, am I setting the pace? In my marriage, am I setting the pace? In my devotional life, am I setting the pace? In serving, am I setting the pace? Third observation. The work is dedicated to the Lord. This passage, the first verse, tells us that Eliashib and the high priest, they started working on that gate, and they reassembled it, and then they dedicated it to the Lord. The word that we translate dedicate is also sometimes translated sanctified or set apart for God's purposes. Basically, that means taking everyday stuff or an everyday person or an everyday task and looking at it as something that brings honor and glory to God, something that has a higher purpose, something that can be used for a more noble outcome. So it was very important for Jerusalem to have gates and doors so they could close the city at night, so they could keep marauding invaders from coming into the city. So that was a very functional, important task, but it was also important to have a motivation of dedicating that work, of consecrating it to the glory of God for his purposes. So Nehemiah was rebuilding the city for God's honor and glory so that God's reputation would be reestablished in that part of the world and so that all the people in the region would know that God of the Israelites kept his promise to his people even when they didn't keep their promise to him. That the God of Israel was the God who could rebuild and redeem and restore. He's the giver of unexpected and undeserved blessings. And he takes what's broken and he puts it back together again. So the priests dedicated this work to the Lord and Nehemiah saw it as something that was for God's honor and glory. Later in the chapter, verse 20, we read that Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. So lots of people are doing work, but this guy is working so zealously that the original language is he is on fire. He is burning with such a passionate hunger to get the job done well that Nehemiah singles him out. He's blazing with enthusiasm because he realizes this is not just a job. This is not just a construction project. This is the work of God that changes lives and impacts the course of history for individuals and countries and even churches. He's not a priest, but his work is dedicated to the Lord just the same. So Paul tells us in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not men. So as a church family, we want to make sure that no matter what we're doing, our highest priority is pleasing God. And we want to do it with our whole hearts, with all our energy, and enthusiasm. Our focus isn't primarily on practicality or personal pride or playing itself. It's doing what pleases God in a way that honors Him. So to a casual observer, it may look on Sunday mornings like the setup team, their job is to move and set up chairs or to, to move bins in that have all the gear on them or to roll out carpets or, you know, to hand out supplies. But if that work is dedicated to the Lord, then the task is really about setting the stage for spiritual transformation 
that goes on Sunday mornings here. This service doesn't happen without the equipment and the supplies and the microphones and all of the stuff that gets moved in and moved out. We've got nothing unless we have set up people that see this as holy work that brings honor and glory to God. Working with kids, it's not babysitting. It's investing in treasures that God values highly, helping them experience the love of Jesus in a safe and fun environment that's geared to their needs. We realize that we have this divinely appointed opportunity to help little kids understand the love of Christ. And they could begin early in life to walk with Jesus and not squander decades like some of us did before we turned to Jesus. So the same kind of patience and comfort that we've received from God, we want to pour that into our little kids. And it's not a job. It is a privilege to serve a loving God who treasures our kids. So after the service, instead of heading towards people we already know, we choose the God-honoring thing, and we make visiting with new people our priority. Even though we're not that comfortable with it, it feels weird and awkward. But think how weird and awkward it feels to them when they come into a new congregation and nobody says anything. If you're visiting here, we appreciate you being here this morning. Hopefully, after that admonition, a bunch of people are going to talk to you afterwards. You can blame it on me. Be really awkward. Sorry about that. But that kind of conversation, that makes the difference between somebody being willing to come back the next Sunday or them turning around and staying away from church for another 20 years. And we have no idea what God may have in mind with that kind of conversation. So our highest interest is not our comfort, our preferences, our success, our security. Our focus is whatever pleases God. For me, this is a challenge because I work for a church. My job involves doing stuff that happens around the church, spiritual stuff, things that that serve the purposes of the church. And sometimes it's easy to think of the work as just work. It's my job. Gosh, another report? Are you kidding? Another meeting? I'm sure you don't think about that. You know, at your job, you don't see things that way. But at least for me, I can lose sight of the fact that these everyday tasks involve the kingdom of God. And I have the privilege of being able to focus the best part of my week, my highest energy levels, my most creative thoughts, my most passionate energy, I get to focus building the kingdom of God. They're not just assignments to get done. God has invited me to play on his team, and I get to be involved in his work. So we dedicate the work to God. Another observation. Some choose not to work. Nehemiah 3.5 says the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. So Tekoa is a little village. It's about 11 miles away from Jerusalem. And we know from other parts of this chapter that the men from this village wholeheartedly threw themselves into God's work. They had farther to travel to get to the job site than people that lived in Jerusalem. So every morning, they would get up and they would walk for hours, and then they would work all day, and then they would walk home. That's how much they were committed to this job that God had called them to do. But they're noble people. Their influential leaders, or perhaps their affluent families, they were not interested in the work. They felt maybe it was beneath their dignity, or it wasn't worth their effort, or they had a, a philosophical issue with the people in charge, or they had better things to do. We're not told the details, but this situation certainly resonates with us, doesn't it? Whether it's in the office or a group project at school, there's typically somebody who's not that interested in getting the work done for whatever reason. 
Now, in church life, there are occasionally, there are some reasons why somebody might appear to be idling or moving slow. They might want to hang back. For example, if this is your first Sunday at Gateway, you don't need to sign up for a volunteer team today. I just want you to feel comfortable about that. We'd love it if you would come back next Sunday. Then we'll ask you for that. No, if, if you are a visitor, thank you for coming. Pastor Ed would love to talk with you afterwards. I'd love to talk with you. It's, you know, if you're new to a church, then it takes a little while to get your footing and kind of feel like, well, wait, is this a place where I could, I could see myself being at home? It takes a little bit of time to do that. Or maybe you're not sure where you are with God and what a personal relationship with Christ would look like. And so this just seems weird. And for you, just showing up, that's a big deal. So, okay, maybe you're idling a little bit. Or you could be going through a tough season in life and you're struggling. But even if you're idling or taking it slow, you still want to maintain some forward momentum. You don't want to stall out or drift. And there are things you can do, maybe not at a fast and furious pace, but there are things you can do to get to know people. You can ask questions. You can get information. You can check out small groups. You can ask people to pray for you. There are opportunities where you don't have to just be dead in the water. You can actually be making some tentative steps forward. And I would encourage you to do that. If over an extended period of time, you find that you can't get engaged in a church, that you can't be fully committed, you can't say, count me in, you're at the wrong church. You need to go someplace else. Because God did not design you or call you to a church that you can't fully invest your life in. Now, there's some bad reasons for people idling and not being fully engaged. My son attends a great church in California, but he's asked several times about taking on more responsibility. So he went to a small group leader. He mentioned it to one of the pastors. He emailed the office, and nobody's ever gotten back to him. Now, that is a tragedy, because I know what kind of a, a leader he is. And we've made those kind of organizational you know, errors at Gateway. Every church does. They drop the ball. That's not supposed to happen. And we need to work harder and better if that's you and, you know, you said, I want to volunteer and nobody ever got back to you. If that's the case, I want you to email me. My email address is on the back of the program. Let me know and I will make sure you get hooked up. Sometimes the reason people don't get involved is because they've served a lot in the past. And they figure like, look, I gave four years with that ministry and I'm done. You know, I don't even have kids anymore, so I'm not going to work in kids town. They don't see an opportunity to do what they're passionate about or what they're comfortable with. I can tell you, in the Bible, I am not aware of a single circumstance where God called someone to be comfortable. If anything, the pattern is he calls them to do something they think they can't do. Most of the time in church life, like in your family, there is a need and somebody has to step up because the task has to be done. So if it's 3 a.m. and your five-year-old vomits all over the room, it's not a question of, like, is your spiritual gift cleaning up vomit? <laughs> Do you have a passion for cleaning up that? You know, are you at 3 o'clock in the morning, are you just at your optimal? You know, do you just love cleaning the house early in the morning? Oh, awesome. No, it's not that. It's just somebody needs to take care of this child. And somebody needs to do it with grace and patience. And it's beyond comfort. It doesn't smell comfortable. But somebody has to clean it up. And so many times in the life of the church, there are messes that need to be cleaned up. If you find yourself holding back or sort of idling for the wrong reason, then realize that God invites us into his magnificent work. And it's not just to get some stuff done. It's not because he's using us. We have the privilege of serving him, of partnering with him 
accomplishing his work in the world. Let me wrap this up with one final observation. Some go above and beyond. So in verse 4, we hear about Merimoth, the son of Uriah, who repaired a section of the wall. And then later in verse 21, he's at work on another section. So he's like over here, and he's working, and he gets that rebuilt, and he works really hard and fast so he can get done. And then he runs over here, and he does some more. Or we hear about the Tekoites, the people that we talked about just a minute ago. Their noblemen wouldn't work. Well, in verse 5, they're repairing one section. Later in verse 27, they tackle another part. It would have been easy for a lot of people in their position to say, like, hey, if you're not working and you're the influence leaders in our community, then I'm done. You know, if you're not doing your fair share, I'm going home. That's not what they said. They said, look, if you guys aren't getting it, we'll take care of it. If there's a need, we will do it. They weren't content to do just what was asked of them. They were totally committed and willing to sacrifice and do whatever it took. This is the same kind of attitude that Paul talks about in Philippians 2, where he says Jesus demonstrated this. Jesus wasn't just a rabbi or a, a prophet who came and told us how much God loved us. No. See, Jesus went to the cross, and he died in our place so we could be forgiven and have a fresh start with God. He humbled himself, even though he was the Son of God. He left heaven, stepped into the chaos that we created, and he laid down his life. He went above and beyond. Anytime we do that, anytime we have that kind of attitude, then we are walking in his footsteps. We're following his example. Last, there are people all over Gateway who model this. I'm just going to mention one kid. She's not in here. I won't even tell you her name. But we had a dessert in honor of our graduating high school seniors last Sunday night. I asked middle schoolers to help out with the decorations. One of the girls showed up in her newly minted cast and didn't even know if her foot was broken. Later on, it turned out, yes, there was a fracture. And she hopped around for the better part of two hours, setting up decorations and labeling desserts and doing all this stuff because she wanted to be there. And when she'd finish one thing, she'd say, okay, what next? Now, that doesn't happen by accident. I think that happens because parents set the example. And then she gets to to live this out, and this is her experience at Gateway because she's surrounded by people who value that kind of performance and who say, look, this job needs to be done. Who will help me out? I'm going. You want to come with me? So anytime we willingly shoulder a bigger portion of the load, we're seeing more of Jesus' character come to life inside of us, and we're reflecting more of his love to the people around us. Maybe that in order for your marriage or your family to really flourish, you're going to have to go above and beyond. It could be at your job. If you want people to see the difference that Jesus is making in your life, you're going to have to go above and beyond. Is that fair? Probably not. But that's just the deal. When you become a follower of Christ, you're saying, I want to be like him. And Jesus went above and beyond for us, so we're called to do that for others. And I can tell you with certainty that in order for us to seize the opportunity that God has set before us in this season at Gateway. We're going to need many, many people who will say, I'll go above and beyond. You can count me in. Where do you need help? I'm no good at that, but I'm glad to help out. Let me just touch on this last thing real quick. Nehemiah takes names. That's really weird because he's the governor of this area. He's running this immense job rebuilding a city, and yet he takes the time to jot down the names of those who participated. Maybe it's to show honor to them, despite opposition and hardship, their willingness to accomplish this task that God called them to do. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's to be an encouragement to 
the people of God who would come later and future generations like us who would look at it and go like, wow, that's pretty cool. Nehemiah knew that every person matters to God. And he grasped from God's perspective that this wasn't just about the building project. I mean, if God had wanted to, he could have just gone, bam, and there would have been a wall around Jerusalem. He wanted them to be participating in the work. This was about individual decisions and individual people who chose to obey God regardless of what it would cost them. And so, because they were faithful and obedient to God, here we are 2,500 years later, and we're reading their names in the Bible. Let me ask you this. What if God was writing chapter 3 in the story of Gateway Community Church? You know, first chapter is the beginning, and then chapter 2 is the Middle Ages, and then chapter 3 is, they get a building! What names would he write for those who willingly, gladly went above and beyond and picked up one stone after another? And these people aren't heroes because they raised somebody from the dead or they parted the Red Sea. They're heroes because they picked up one piece of brick and they put it on another. And they hammered one nail into a board and then another. If we are willing to take one step of faith in this journey that God has called us to, and then another, maybe our names will be written in God's book and we'll be a part of the history of Gateway in a way that years from now people will look back and go like, man, I heard those are crazy times at Gateway. I mean, like everybody's doing all kinds of stuff, so many people coming in. May that be the way that God blesses us. I have a closing assignment for you. I want you to open your program if you got one. There's a post-it note in there, and hopefully you got a pen. If you don't have the post-it, if you don't have the pen, you're going to have to memorize this. It's pretty simple. Just a post-it with a real simple diagram, three circles, and in the middle circle is Sunday morning and small groups. And, and I guess this, from a gateway perspective, this is what we hope you'll be thinking and praying about. We're going to come back and, and touch on this a couple of times this summer, that at the core of who you are as a follower of Christ, if Gateways your church home is, you need to be involved in Sunday morning and small groups. Not just to show up, although that's a good start. We want you to be fully invested in the work of these things. You need to be growing and thriving and having people pouring into you. And that happens not just on Sunday mornings, but in small group where you are around other people who get to know you and they'll pray for you, uh, they'll support you. So that's at the core of being a healthy, fully devoted follower of Christ. But then we're also asking everybody, everybody at Gateway, would you pray about serving on a team? I mean, there is so much work, not very much vomit to clean up, but a lot of work that needs to get done. And we need everybody pulling as much weight as they can in order to make that happen. And we're going to come back and, and we'll talk more about that next month. We're going to have some ways for you to be aware of what the needs are, where the, the challenges are, and, and how you could be helpful with that. And then a third layer, this may actually be kind of outside of the realm of what our church does. That's your personal ministry. And it could be as simple as like, God has given you a passion for books. So you just join a book club, not Christian books, just a book club, and you're bringing a God-honoring perspective to the discussion. Or maybe you love running, and so you're going to start a running group, and you're the only God follower in that group. But you're going to let people begin to see what a Christian looks like. And that's the personal ministry that God has called you to. It could be something that connects with what Gateway is doing. It could be something you just do on your own because you're really passionate about it. But I want you to pray about these three things. I'd like you to just scribble this down on your post-it note or in your program and then take it home and I want you to stick that post-it note on your mirror in the bathroom 
or on the dashboard of your car or inside of your Bible or someplace where you're going to come back to it. And your assignment is to pray about that over the next couple of months. I want you to pray about, am I at the right church? If I am, am I willing to get fully engaged? Am I in a small group? Am I looking for a small group? Am I asking about small groups? Am I investing in the people in my small group in between meetings? Am I really fully engaged? And then kind of outside of that, teams, am I involved? Am I volunteering? Am I, am I helping? Even if I'm not on a team, when I come in on Sunday mornings, do I come early and say, hey, what do you guys need help with? Am I willing to stay late and help just pack things up? Am I fully engaged in the work that needs to be done at this church? And then third, hey, God, what, what is my personal ministry? What is it that you've uniquely equipped me to do that maybe I'm not doing? Would you give me some direction on that? Would you give me some encouragement? Put people in my life that would maybe steer me in the right direction or, or give me somebody that I can talk to about that. So I want you to take just 20 seconds, draw that diagram, fill it out. And then I want you to bow your head when you're done. And you can spend a couple of moments here just silently talking to God about these three things, and then I'm going to close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that when we turn to your Son and we let him be the leader and forgiver in our life, you include us, you invite us to the greatest adventure in the world. And you call us to be partners with you in accomplishing your work in the world. Whether it's helping a homeless guy or telling somebody about the difference you're making in our life, we get to be on your team. And so let us not take that for granted. I pray that you would help us to be hungry in looking for uh, where you want us to serve, helping us figure out what full engagement looks like in our church. Thank you so much for the incredible opportunity you've laid before us with this building, for all of the new people that have come to know you because we've invited them into a, a safe community space where they can be comfortable and know they're welcome and they can get a glimpse of you when they look at us. May we be faithful to the opportunity that you've given us, fully engaged in the calling that you've placed on our hearts so that you'd be honored and glorified. And we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hey, thank you. That wraps everything up. Go in peace. Have a great Sunday and enjoy your day off.